0: back to the Forgotten Library. As always, I'm Nikki G. Today's episode goes a little bit more back to form. I'm inclined to think of a podcast more like a television show. I know that sounds kind of weird, but that's how I think of it. And episode four, while still entertaining to some, added a different element, like a special guest that isn't to everyone's taste or a crossover episode that no one asked for. So today we're going back to our little four-color friends, the Golden Age comics. In episode three, I gave a very brief overview of comics in general, so if you'd like to hear more about that, you can listen to the first few minutes of that episode, or check the show notes for my sources. Since then, I've done a little more research into the beginnings of the romance comics specifically. This episode goes a bit long, and I've learned my lesson from last time, so I will definitely be splitting this into two shows. The romance comic origin story begins with the Pulps. These were magazines named for the type of paper on which they were printed, which was much cheaper to print than, say, the glossies or slicks like Saturday Evening Post, which were printed on much higher quality paper and could command a slightly higher price. The Pulps began in 1896, but really hit their stride in the 1920s. I won't go into too much detail about the Pulps, as these will probably feature in a future episode, but many titles were long-running, some to over 100 issues. One of these was Love Story magazine, which printed an astronomical 1,158 issues in its 26-year run. Pulps eventually died out mainly due to paperback novels, the rise of television, and comic books, which were similar to the thrilling tales of the pulps, but with pictures, and in color too. So these comics, geared toward teens and young girls, also gave rise to the specific romance genre eventually. But first, there was Archie. Archie was put out by MLJ Comics, which eventually became Archie Comics Publications. Archie is generally recognized as the first teen humor title. While there were others, they weren't as well-known or as long-lived. Prior to Archie, there were newspaper strips such as Freckles and His Friends in 1915 and Harold Teen in 1919, as well as Andy Hardy movies with Mickey Rooney put out by MGM in the late 30s through the mid-1940s, and Henry Aldrich movies put out by Paramount in the late 1930s to mid-1940s, as well as him having his own radio program. Harold Teen would also star in an all-teen humor comic book called Del Four Color in 1942. It's what's known as a one-shot, in which he appeared only in that one, and was never seen again in that particular title. Archie made his debut in Pep Comics and Jackpot Comics, eventually taking over Pep with exclusive cover rights in December 1944. The first issue under his own name was in winter 1942, but he shared this issue with some animal humor comics as well, which were popular at the time. Such characters as Cubby the Bear, Judge Owl, Squirmy the Worm, and Bumby the b Detective. No, I'm not making that up. World War II and post-war paper rationing led to Archie appearing sparingly during 1945-1946, to 1946, with 10 issues and 12 issues respectively being published in those years. There were other experiments of regular teen comics along the same line, such as Wilbur, also from MLJ. He predated Archie by a few months and got his own comic after starring in Zip Comics, but eventually died out in 1944. Also, Haphazard from Ace ran from 1944 to 1949. This would become Real Love in April 1949, Ace's first romance title. The female frontrunner to Archie was Patsy Walker. She made her debut around the same time as Archie, but was put out by Timely, the company that eventually became Marvel. Yes, that Marvel. Miss America was a flying heroine in Marvel Mystery Comics from 1943 to 1948, and eventually got her own comic book. Patsy Walker debuted in the second issue of Miss America's own title and became the lead feature after Miss disappeared for some reason from her own comic after issue number five. This led to the title evolving from a superhero title into a preteen and teen comic. In addition to strips, it had features on fashion, beauty, and so on, as well as lots more advertising than its contemporaries. Patsy had her own title by 1945. Unlike Archie and other comic book characters, she only ever appeared inside the pages of these four-color beauties, never on television or radio programs. Her comic became very popular. During an upset in the early 1950s, which led to many publishing houses, including Timely/Slash/Marvel, jettisoning many of their titles, Patsy Walker and Miss America were kept as bi-monthly publications. According to Michelle Nolan, nearly 20% of Marvel's comic books in 1958 featured the same two teenage girls. Patsy Walker would have five titles over the years: the aforementioned Miss America, Patsy Walker, and also Patsy and Hetty, featuring Hetty Divine, Marvel's answer to Archie's Veronica. Patsy and Her Pals, and Girl's Life. These latter two were more limited runs. Girl's Life was only six issues, for example, and marketed as Patsy Walker doing the editing for her own magazine. Patsy Walker and Archie spawned many competitors in the teen humor niche. From 1947 to 1950, Timely Marvel publisher Martin Goodman had approximately 230 issues devoted to teen humor, stretched over 14 different titles. Some of these were working girl comics, such as Millie the Model, Nellie the Nurse, Tessie the Typist, and so on. Some were marketed as career girl comics, which I'm not really sure what the difference was. One of note was Meet Miss Bliss in 1955, which had a four issue run. This comic was written by Stan Lee, yes, that's Stan Lee, and illustrated by Al Hartley, and was about an elementary school teacher trying to find love. These issues were during the Comics Code Authority period, so publishers were basically throwing anything at the wall to see what stuck, as it were. Other short-lived Lee Hartley efforts during this time were *Delavision*, which was slapstick strips about television, Patty Powers, which dealt with movie stars, Sherry the Showgirl, and Showgirls. Titles changed rapidly, and yet the numbering would stay the same. This was to get around the post office. Technically, a new title would need a new permit, but by keeping the numbering sequential, the publishers would usually be able to slip it past the PO and keep the costs down. To give an example of how insanely quickly titles and genres could change in one sequence, Four Favorites, a comic about World War II superheroes, ran from issue number one until issue number 32. Issue 33 was a one-shot called Penalty. Issue 34 was Four Teeners, a humor one-shot issues 35 to 40 were Dotty, more teen humor featuring the titular character, to end with glamorous romances starting with issue 41 and continuing under that title until the end of its run. As stated in episode 3, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, the duo who created Captain America in 1941, started the romance comics craze with Young Romance in 1947, which was put out by Crestwood Publications. However, that was not their first to say. Prior to Young Romance, the two put out My Date, a teen humor comic that lasted four issues from July 1947 until January 1948. Consider it one more bridge to romance comics. After this, there was no stopping the train. Marvel, still calling itself timely at this point, would counter with My Romance in August 1948. Fox Comics was third with My Life in September 1948, numerically continuing their sexy teen humor title Meet Corliss Archer. Fawcett Publications switched Captain Midnight to Sweethearts in October 1948, and Crestwood, eventually bought out by DC Comics in 1963, would publish a sister to Young Romance called Young Love, starting in 1949. After this, pretty much everyone, even the tinier publishers, got into the romance comics in some way, leading to what Michelle Nolan, author of Love on the Racks, a history of romance comics, calls the Love Glut. This was not sustainable long-term, of course, so by the early 1950s, many of these titles would be canceled. Dr. Vertheim's Seduction of the Innocent, published in 1954, demonized comics for being too violent and suggestive for young readers, leading to delinquency and other such evils. Gee, this sure sounds familiar in the video game era, doesn't it? Some publishers began to self-censor their overly violent or salacious content. The Comics Code Authority began in 1955, There were 41 general standards regarding crime, violent imagery, sexual and suggestive themes, and so on. Here are some code examples. No profanity, obscenity, or excessive use of slang terms. No references to physical afflictions or deformities. That included overweight. No nudity or indecent exposure. No suggestive postures. Females should be drawn without exaggeration of physical attributes. Boobs. The sanctity of marriage should be upheld always. No illicit sex, no joking about divorce or seeing it as desirable, and no stimulation of the lower or baser emotions. Well, oh, that just kills a lot of the fun, doesn't it? And these restrictions did indeed lead to much more watered-down fare in comic book land, and some publishing houses folded entirely because of them. Today's fare is once again from Ace Magazine's. I would have done these in chronological order, but as you can tell from this brief synopsis, that proves way too complicated. So we're doing alphabetical for now, unless I can find a different way to do this. Ace magazines also went by the names Ace Periodicals, Ace Comics, and Periodical House. They were one of the first American paperback lines and got their start in Pulps. As noted earlier, Haphazard was their teen character Answered Archie until 1949 with Real Love, Ace's first romance title. At this time, Ace dumped most of its pulps for comics, and then in the mid-1950s, gave up the comics game entirely in favor of paperbacks, which were becoming more profitable for them. Ace would publish a total of 279 issues across 12 different titles. One of these was a hybrid from their original teen comic, Dottie, which then became Glamorous Romances. This title, along with Love at First Sight, Love Experiences, and Real Love, were the publishing house's longest-running series. Romances ran six issues from August 1949 until August 1950. Number five is not available on any of the comics websites I've checked, so let's see what we can dig up in the five extant issues. Right on the inside cover is a full-sized house advert for all of Ace's Romance Comics, billing them as exciting, fascinating, different. Every cover has an embracing couple on them, which, yeah, romance mag, but is it really different then? Our first story is, I couldn't go back to him. No, I just couldn't. We open with a blonde woman and a dark-haired dude with a pipe. He has his arm around her, and they're standing at a white picket fence with a cute ranch-style home in the background. The text intro tells us that the woman had gone to visit her old school friend, Gloria, and met Michael. Of course, she wasn't expecting anything at all, at all, but they had a whirlwind courtship, and now they are engaged Michael bought them this cute little house, and it's all furnished and ready for them and their love. Aww. Faye sighs happily about the house, and Michael tells her that he's the envy of all the men folk in their town because she's the best-looking woman they've ever seen. That seems pretty shallow, and indeed, in the next panel, Faye tells us that Michael is always talking about her looks, and that worries her because it seems that's all he cares about. Yeah, you don't have to squint to see that red flag waving there, honey. He continues waxing poetic about her beauty, and that she needs to go to Los Angeles and get herself a lovely trousseau that will compliment her looks. She demurs because she doesn't want to be apart for him for a couple of days, but he says she's got to have a lovely wedding gown and be the most beautiful bride in the whole state of California. This ain't a little flag y'all, it's a fucking banner. Before she leaves, she talks to her friend Gloria, and discovers that Gloria and Michael used to date. But Michael swears he only has eyes for Faye now, because she is so beautiful. You're a trophy, Faye. Michael can't wait to mount you on the wall of your new home. Of course, tragedy must strike, or there isn't a story. On the train, there's a terrible crash, and Faye is flung into a mirror which cuts her face, making her a candidate for plastic surgery. In the hospital, Dr. Robert asks for a photograph of her, so that he can fix her face. Swathed in bandages, face as he can do what he likes, for nothing matters anymore. Okay, pig face it is, then. Faye tells us that she was too ill to care at first, but then realized that if she needed that much plastic surgery, her face must be terribly scarred. What would Michael do? But then she also discovers that there was a mix-up during the wreck, and she was reported as dead. She wonders if, since she's probably ugly now, she should just let him go on thinking that she's no longer among the living. The doctor breaks in on her thoughts and asks if there isn't anyone he can contact for her. She has no living relatives, of course, and she doesn't want anyone to know about her, least of all Michael. When her bandages finally come off, she cries that she looks horrible. The nurse tries to assuage her upset, saying that the lines on her face will go away as she heals, but she hates her face. She wants Michael, but yet says nothing because she's disfigured now, and she knows that he won't want her. She's ready to leave the hospital, and Dr. Robert asks if there's anyone to take care of her, and that he kind of feels responsible for her now. She says that she was a doctor's receptionist before the accident, and he says, Great, I need a new office assistant, so you can work for me, and you can board with me and my sister. Fay wants to know if he just made this job up to help her out because she's a charity case, but he doesn't really answer that. So that means we know the answer, don't we? During this scene, by the way, Faye has on a hooded cloak and her face is in shadow. Dr. Robert's sister Molly is kind to her from the very beginning. We can see Fay's face now, and she's still pretty, just a different way. Her nose is different, that sort of thing. Faye keeps herself busy, but Molly thinks it's not normal for Faye to stay in and not date. Don't think about turning weird, Fay. Molly has her eye on you. She also tells us that she's been avoiding mirrors as much as possible. Finally, the doctor forces her to look at herself in the mirror. She realizes she could go back to Michael, and this causes the doctor to sigh and turn away. Faye knows that the doctor is in love with her, but who cares about that? She's still pretty, so she could still be with Michael even though she's been away for three months, and he thinks she's dead. Oh, and also that he's really fucking shallow. Whatever. Faye says her tearful goodbyes to Molly and Dr. Bob and travels back to the little house that might have been hers. Of course, Michael doesn't recognize her when he comes to the door. Duh. You had plastic surgery, remember? What's worse is that she hears Gloria's voice inside the house saying that the person at the door is probably the society reporter she invited from the paper. Michael invites her in and tells her that she's very beautiful. Here we go again. Fay realizes she must reveal herself, and indeed, Michael thought that she was dead. Once he hears the story, he kisses her, and Fay waits for the thrills. But they're not there. Gloria's shocked face is in the doorway in the background, which, yeah, she's supposed to be marrying this guy, and all of a sudden his old girlie comes back and he's into her again. Sup, shallow bastard? especially when we discover that their wedding day is tomorrow. Fay tells Michael to go after Gloria, but Michael's like, meh, she'll get over it. Boy, you rescued me today from marrying that ago, huh? Give us another kiss, baby. Fay says, you were only ever infatuated with me. It was never love. Gloria is the one for you. The whole time I was away, I thought about this house. Michael replies, well, if you marry me, then the house will be ours. Fay says, When I marry Michael, it will be a man I marry, not a house. I sure hope so, lady, as I think there are laws about that sort of thing. He gives her a weird ultimatum. If she leaves, he'll marry Gloria and never look at another pretty face for the rest of his life. That's a horrible thing to say about your betrothed. Fay's like Boy, bye. I'll send you a wedding present. She goes back to doctor Bob's house, which pisses Molly off, because she figures Fay is coming back to break her brother's heart. Bitch, you can't seem to make up your mind, so I completely understand why Molly would be shitty to you. Dr. Bob comes in just in time, and Faye runs to him and tells him that he's the one she loves, and he asks her to marry him. She says he made over her heart when he made over her face, and she loves him. For today, that is. I'd watch out for her doctor. She seems a bit fickle. Just like Michael. The next story is Sister Without Scruples. Sounds kinky. A girl named Fran is our narrator for this one. She met Jeff Gilbert at a charity function three weeks ago, and he's already told her that he loves her. Whirlwind romance indeed. These all seem to have that theme. That's probably why things get so easily screwed up. Anyway, Jeff says that it's high time he met her family. You know I haven't any of my own, so yours will have to do for both of us. Oh, Jeff, I just love your patronizing tone especially from an orphan. And what if you don't like her family? Is that her fault? Of course, Fran is more worried that Jeff will like them a little too much, especially her stepsister Rita. Rita takes all of Fran's men away from her. Whoa. She realizes that she can't stall Jeff any longer, so she invites him to Sunday dinner. At home, Fran confronts Rita and warns her to keep her mitts off this one. Rita's response is that she can't help it that they always fall for her. And what does Fran want her to do? Dress like a hag? Rita's mother says that if a man isn't willing to go, no other girl can get him away. And that Rita is just uncovering their fickle natures early on. And isn't it better to know now, rather than later? A man can't be taken by another if he isn't willing to go. I didn't mention it in the previous story, but... Faye pretty much says the exact same thing before the train crashes and she flies into the mirror. Yes, no other girl can take him away. If said girl keeps putting herself in that man's way, however, with the intent of making his impossibly tiny waist-high head turn towards her... I love how Rita's mom makes her out to be a hero to woman kind of a sort. Yes, Rita, show these men for the scoundrels they are with your raven tresses and teensy waist. In the next panel, Fran tells us that Rita lied to the last two guys she dated, telling them that Fran was a two-timer and other things when she was only working late. Of course, her stepmother defends her real daughter, and her father just wants to read his damn paper, damn it. Fran lays awake and worries all night. The next day, Jeff comes over for dinner, and Fran introduces him to her family. Rita is posing sexily as she says that she needs to do some charity work too. Because Fran meets so many charming men that way, that she likes to steal. Since we're all about the shallowness in these stories, please indulge my skin-deep comment for a mo. Both women are in this panel. Fran has her hair up and is wearing a yellow dress that kind of looks frumpy. Stepsis is in a red dress with a scooped neck and her hair tumbling loose. So, you know that your bitch of a stepsister is going to try to grab your man away from you. You know she has that seductive look about her and wears her hair down. How scandalous. Your solution is to dress in a shirtwaist with frilly pockets? Yeah, she's looking pretty smokin' by comparison. And baring her shoulders. Rita makes some insinuations about Fran that she has so many suitors, that sort of thing. Later, Jeff takes a walk outside with Fran, and he floats the idea that Rita is a bit outspoken. Fran says that's not quite the word she would use. Then he says that Rita is very pretty, and Fran looks away, thinking, he's a goner. To add further insult, he says that Rita seems to be the one that would be more sophisticated rather than Fran, but appearances can be deceiving, I guess. Is sophisticated code for whore? I think it is. Instead of really defending herself, Fran just says, not just appearances, girl claws. Fight. Rita's purrs did not fall on unwilling ears, we learn, as it's just about a week later and Jeff is taking Rita out now instead of Fran. Hmm. A week seems rather long. Perhaps his periscope is not up to snuff. He needs to talk to Dr. Howe. Rita is dancing with Jeff and makes further insinuations about her stepsister being not all she seems, and he's like, don't talk about Fran, let's talk about us. You seem to have fallen out of love rather quickly, Jeff, and without a word to your original girlfriend. Yeah, but she's the callous one. While these two are out having a grand old time, Fran is laying in bed crying and wondering how she can get Jeff back. If only there was a way to prove that her stepsister is the conniving one. But how? The next day at work, Fran encounters Mr. Creeper, whose actual name is Lee. His opening line is, "'Hello, beautiful. It couldn't be me you're daydreaming about, could it?' He looks quite a bit older than her, which ups the ick factor. Ordinarily, Fran would turn him down, as he oh-so-dramatically says this would be for the 21st time, and I really hope that's hyperbole on his part, because if it's not, dude, you're beyond towing the Predator line and have actually leapt over it, but she says, "'Oh, you give up too easily. Try me again.' So he asks her on a date for the evening, and she says yes, wheels turning rapidly in her little blonde head. Because Fran has a secret, plotting bitch side to her too, even though she pretends that she doesn't. Of course, he can't believe his ears, and she jokes with him and tells us that she would feel bad about using Lee, but he makes a play for all the girls and isn't really attached to anyone. That still doesn't mean he isn't squeaky, Fran. Just saying. Anyway... She goes home all happy and smiles past Rita, who's suspicious and wants to know what's up. Fran waxes poetic about Lee and how wonderful he is and has really, truly love this time, not infatuation. While she's talking, Rita is all done up in a two-piece strapless bathing suit with very prominent cleavage and posing like a model while she listens to her stepsister. This volume is definitely pre-code because there are several violations in this one panel alone. Fran continues about how she's so glad that Rita took Jeff off her hands because then she never would have fallen for Lee, etc., etc. And seriously, Rita, how dumb are you? Two weeks ago, Fran was basically begging you not to steal her man, and now she's all gushy and telling you too much information. Doesn't this make you wonder at all? Lee arrives at eight and is surprised to see a smoking-hot sister. Rita is equally surprised that Fran hooked a man like Lee, Rita's a little more covered in this scene, I suppose because she's going out. She even has on elbow-length gloves. Fancy! Rita purrs at him, too, and Lee invites her to join him and Fran for the evening. Fran is nearly giddy inside, realizing this is working much better than she even dared to hope. Rita dances with Lee in the next scene and says that Fran gets so jealous and likes the attention of every man in town, but Lee doesn't believe her. By the next time Jeff comes to the house, Rita is going out with Lee and turns Jeff down at the door. Of course, he's stupid and doesn't understand what happened. Several days go by and Fran accidentally runs into Jeff on his way home from work. He tells Fran that he liked Rita very much, but he can't understand why now. She's beautiful, but heartless. Why do they always lead with the looks? Fucking shallow asshole men. So then Jeff asks Fran if she's doing anything that night would she like to go out? Fran suggests dancing at the glass slipper, which is where she knows Rita will be with Lee. They end up sitting at adjoining tables, and Rita comments that Fran sure moved on from being in love with Lee very quickly, eh? Fran's all, what are you talking about? Me? In love with Lee? Don't be silly. Rita realizes aloud that Fran lied to trap her. Fran replies coolly that she's in fact trapping herself. Both men realize that things finally make sense. Oh, I guess the blood has ascended, huh, fellas? Jeff leaves with Fran, and Lee gets in Rita's face and says that he couldn't understand why she would have fed him those ridiculous lies about Fran. But now he gets it, so goodbye, loser. Rita sits there and sobs for her little old self. Outside, Jeff says that he's been such a stupid fool. I'd also add shallow jerk-off to the mix, as well as cowardly. Now he knows why Fran was so hesitant to bring him home. He asks Fran if Frida has been doing this a long time, and she has. Fran didn't want her to destroy her one real romance. Jeff asks for her forgiveness as he finally sees the light. He doesn't expect it, but he really secretly does, because she's a doormat. And she definitely does forgive him, because again, she's a doormat. So, what's the lesson here? Jeff really, truly loves Fran, except for the time when he was into her two-timing hoe of a stepsis. But, but, it wasn't his fault. Rita and her feminine wiles and her shoulders and that, that vixen hair. Blast that woman. I'd say product of the times and have done with it, but I can't. Because if these sorts of comics were produced today, It'd be the same thing, except that Rita would stalk Jeff via Facebook or Instagram and then send him titillating text messages via WhatsApp and maybe booby pics from Snapchat. I don't know. At the bottom of this page is a contest. Ace was giving away four cash prizes for the best submission of 50 words maximum. Rank your top three favorite stories and why. And which comics do you read regularly? That seems like a lot to cram into 50 words, but the top prize was $15.00 which in 2019 money, is $161.40, so approximately 3.28 dollars word. Not too shabby. At first glance, it seems weird, but look into quite a few comics of this time period, and there are similar contests. Really, this is market research, and actually, pretty clever. Today, you're lucky if you get entered into a drawing for an Amazon gift card. This is where we're going to wrap it up for this episode. There are a few more issues to get through, but we'll tackle those in part two which will be released later this week. The Forgotten Library is on many podcast aggregators, the most popular of which are Anchor, where you're probably listening right now, Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can check the rest out on my Anchor page, where you can also leave a comment. You can also email me or hit me up on Twitter at ForgottenLibra1. Until next time, I'm Nikki G., your intrepid library haunter.